Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will talk about the trends in 2020 that will continue into 2021. They'll also cover a weird jewelry story of the week. Happy New Year, everyone. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com. I'm with... Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online, and uh, also wishing you a happy 2021, happy and healthy, let's hope. Let's hope. 21. It, you know, I back when, well, a whole year ago, it might as well have been a decade ago for how much we endured. You know, I was very excited for 2020. It had that nice round number. Our last guest, Matt Steller, mentioned how excited he was at the dawn of 2020. And now, of course, we're all thrilled to put 2020 to bed. And 21 feels like it might have a good ring to it. Something about the gambling aspect of it. It does feel a little bit like it could be an uncertain year, but I'm hoping that luck will be on our side. Yeah. uh, You know, there's certain uh, bright signs, you know, vaccine. Hopefully things will get a little bit back to normal and uh, we can all just hope. I mean, it's hard to imagine a worse year than 2020, but I don't even want to say that because uh, it's certainly possible. I agree. Let's not tempt fate. I'm excited looking ahead and things will get better. They tend to do that. So, yeah, I mean, I think as we look ahead to this year, there is so many interesting things that we learned in 2020 that will guide us and inform us as we head into this year. Sure, a lot is uncertain. The economy is going to be uncertain. The distribution of the vaccine is going to be uncertain. But I think we learned a lot about how to operate on the fly in 2020, how to operate super last minute, how to change direction, pivot, I think is the word everybody's kind of sick of at this point. But we certainly learned how to do that pretty gracefully, if I may say that, especially this industry, which I think, you know, we wouldn't have necessarily expected jewelers to adapt as quickly as they did and as they have, because I think we've always seen jewelry as such a traditional world and a traditional industry. But we saw with the embrace of e-commerce, the embrace of digital initiatives, digital marketing, the way that people turned to Zoom and started, you know, meeting bridal clients online, doing pre-owned watch auctions on Zoom. I mean, we saw that across the board, really across the country. I think I'm I'm optimistic that we've figured things out certainly quicker and, you know, more ably than I would have expected. Yeah, this was a year where we all had to think on the fly and make sudden changes and hugely adapt. I mean, I don't think there's any person who's not been touched in some way by COVID or any business or I really I have to say I give the industry a lot of credit because it really it looks scary in March. I mean, there's still some scary aspects to it, but I think people who really wanted to survive really did what they needed to do to survive. And it's been gratifying to see. Well, agreed. So when you say that, when you talk about what they needed to do, I guess what you're saying or thinking is digital and is e-commerce. Is that... Yes. We're going to talk about the big trends of the next year. And I guess that's number one, correct? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, I don't think anybody knows when things are going to get back to normal exactly. I mean, people are hoping for this spring or this summer. But most people think that the greater adoption of e-commerce is pretty much here to stay for the most part. I think some things will revert back to where they were. I don't think people are going to be on Zoom all day if there's no COVID. But the adoption of e-commerce and the ease of e-commerce is probably here to stay. 
Yeah, I think a lot of these questions about which of the behaviors we picked up during the year of pandemic will be sticky. People are generally quite comfortable now with ordering things online, ordering jewelry online. I mean, I recall a conversation I had in the later part of 2020 with the founder of modaoperandi.com, and she'd said that her jewelry sales in the early months of lockdown, so March, April, had shot up 35%. You know, this is when people were indoors, had nothing else to do. They weren't buying clothing because clearly they weren't going anywhere, but they were buying jewelry. We saw people buying jewelry in a way that none of us really thought could happen in the darkest days of the early lockdown. So yeah, I mean, one other direction is, of course, the company that owns us, Reed, put together a whole JCK show that again, also done quite quickly. And that was, you know, an impressive thing to pull off in a matter of a couple months and and got us all together and showed us that we can gather digitally. I think it also underscored how much we miss seeing each other in person and how grateful we will be for those opportunities when they happen. Yeah. What really impressed me is you saw jewelers who were never really that e-commerce savvy all of a sudden getting extremely active on Instagram, on Facebook. All of a sudden, they all had these virtual appointments on their sites, which has become a big thing. So I was just really impressed by the way the industry adapted, how they stayed in communication with their customers, how they found new ways to stay in communications with their customers, how they figured out charitable things to do. I remember when we had Kate Peterson on here, she talked about having employees talk to people in nursing homes who might be kind of cooped up inside their rooms all day. The creativity out there among people who were determined to ride this out was really gratifying to see. It was really amazing. And I think a lot more people are going to ride this out than we originally expected. Yeah. I mean, here I am in LA and we're in the thick of a lockdown and the restaurant industry is obviously hurting. And I fear for the restaurants in my life and in our community, but I don't fear as much as I thought I would fear for the jewelers in the community. And people still get engaged. They're always going to get engaged and maybe even more get engaged now because they're all living together. Bridal certainly has been really, really strong. Yeah. Well, that is such a phenomenon. And I imagine it'll continue because even if we all go back to in-person gatherings, that the virtual stuff will remain. I mean, I think we can just all attend, whether it's happening in Hong Kong or London, all attend some sort of virtual event. There's so many events and conferences and panels and seminars that I always wanted to go to and, you know, I couldn't go to them or I didn't have time or and and now it's all online. And I think that's something that's definitely going to stay that if you do a seminar, you will post it online for everybody to see. And I think that's great because it kind of widens the conversation beyond just the people who attend a specific seminar. Oh, 100%. You know, there are a few topics top of mind for me now as we head into this new year. Another one is, of course, the circular economy, which is partly a conversation about sustainability. It is about a sustainable approach to materials and jewelry in the same way that fine watches are naturally elements of this circular economy. Nobody tends to throw away jewelry. Maybe they either pass it on to a family member or resell it to a reseller somewhere but nobody throws away gold. And same with a nice watch. Nobody throws away a nice watch. These are natural candidates for this circular economy. So I think the conversation about the circular economy will now be wrapped up with the conversation about e-commerce and digital initiatives. 
I'm thinking here specifically about a conversation I just had with the founders of a new website based out of the UK called Omnique. The two curators of the site are very well known to people in the jewelry industry. Joanna Hardy and Vivian Becker, two jewelry specialists based in London, who are extremely well known, have written tons of books, really respected. And some of the people behind this website, which was founded by a former Richemont executive that saw that there wasn't an offering in the jewelry space that mimicked the kind of offerings you see in the pre-owned watch market. So Richemont also owns WatchFinder, which is a big resale site for watches or secondhand watches. We, of course, have seen the crown and calibers of the world, Chrono 24, Bob's watches. There's a whole cropping of these secondary market sellers in the watch space, but we haven't seen as many strong entities in the jewelry space. We have first dibs, there's the real real, but they're not jewelry specialists per se. And so Omnique is this pre-owned jewelry website, really specializing in antique and vintage jewels. And I think we're going to see a big focus on pre-owned jewelry and how it can be bought online in a vetted, trustworthy sense in 2020 and beyond. And I think that's exciting. I think, you know, it's not as exciting for the, for the miners of the world because we're mining our jewelry boxes, as it were. But I think it's pretty great for the planet. Yeah, I think the big question is, how do people get their value for their items? You know, because obviously the tendency is to offer low and then sell high. That's, you know, business. And one of the things that you hear is that when you take jewelry around, you can get a wide variety of prices for it. If you remember, De Beers had this whole secondhand diamond trade-in business that they experimented with. Yeah, what happened with that? Because I was thinking about that, but that was a loose diamond business, right? That was mostly loose diamonds. So uh, what happened with it was they finally felt that the best way to do it was to do it B to C, to just offer it in an auction style. So let the consumers value the diamonds. So what the Beers was trying to do was offer a really fair price for the diamonds. And of course, that hurts your margins. So what they think the answer is, is basically to sell direct to consumers and let the consumers set the price. The issue always is when somebody just comes up and sells a diamond, like how do you make sure it's genuine? How do you make sure it's graded? There's a lot of issues like that, but that's what they felt that the answer was, that in the end, consumer demand is going to set the price of these secondhand items. The question is, what role does the middleman play as far as authenticating it and all the rest? Well, I think, you know, there is a precedent because clearly watches do struggle with these issues as well. Like, is this a counterfeit watch? Is it a Frankenstein watch made of tons of different parts? You know, I guess we look to the people who seem to have perfected that process. I mean, in the case of this website, Omnique, it sources from dealers in the UK and the jewelry is all vetted by these two specialists, Joanna Hardy and Vivian Becker, who really are experts in their field. There is actually another precedent, which is Chrono24, which is a very well-known site, but that site has a slightly different model from what I understand, and it's a little bit more of a buyer beware model. Sellers and buyers come to terms on their own. That's how eBay used to be, and uh, too many people got burned, and the thing is when people get burned, they stop buying. Well, so there'll be trial and error, of course, and hopefully plenty of people in the space. You know, the more competition there is, clearly, the better it serves the consumer. And I do think just all these questions we've touched base on over the past year about sourcing, about transparency, you know, about ethical business. I mean, a lot of these things are just so top of mind as we head into 2021 in this next decade, for sure. 
I mean, I just came across a jeweler. She's based in Sydney. So I'm not sure if her market's going to be here in the States at all. Her name is Sophie Zamel. And her thing, of course, like lots of jewelers things is transparency and ethical, responsible sourcing. And she's got a whole page of her site where every single element of her pieces, there's a traceability journey and you are then privy to that as her consumer, that level of transparency. I think we'll see more of that. That's something Tiffany has done. And it's not 100% clear what the consumer demand is for that. I mean, I think most people don't expect that. Most people don't look for it. But when they see it, I think they appreciate it. Yeah, I think the more we see it, the more people will come to expect it. So perhaps it's sort of a chicken leading the egg scenario. You're right. I don't know that consumers are quite there yet. Some are. Yeah. And I think banks and governments are going to make jewelers and the industry get that information, whether they want to or not. There will be added pressure to say, look, where do these things come from? Prove that you're not dealing with money launderers or drug dealers or terrorists. Along those lines, I blogged about this, and this is something that's going to be possibly interesting over the new year. As part of the defense appropriations bill, there's a new law requiring financial institutions, and jewelers are generally, under the law, considered financial institutions because they buy and sell metals when they're dealing with a company to find out the name of what's called the ultimate beneficial owner. Hmm. And it's not; it doesn't necessarily have to be made public to journalists or to people but they will have to know it and they will have to get that information. And when they do, for example, their Patriot Act reports, they will have to supply that information. So right now, I mean, you know, there's companies, nobody knows who owns them. They're based in like the Cayman Islands and British Virgin Islands. These places are known for masking ownership. And it's a huge problem because you don't know who owns these companies. So it's not something that's going to transform everything overnight, but eventually it's a huge step towards transparency. And it's a shame it's not being made public because I don't see why people should mask the ownership of their companies. Yeah, I know you will often ask this of people who come to you for stories or people who pitch you story ideas about certain companies. And when they don't answer that question about who is behind the company, you tend to say thanks, but no thanks, right? Yeah, it, it should be a basic, it's not a hard question, you know, it, it's actually, it should be very basic. It's pretty silly when you're promoting something about disruptive transparency, then be opaque about who's behind you. I mean, it, it's pretty laughable because honestly, what a cracker, you know what? Yeah, so there's been a lot of podcast series on, you know, under the so-called underground economy. And one I was listening to a podcast the other day, and one point they made was people act like this is the shadow economy, that all these hidden companies mm. are a shadow economy. But in reality, they are the economy. You know, they're such a huge part of our economy that they're not something that's just in the shadows. They are really part of our economy that so many rich people hide assets and hide who they're with. And and so many terrorists and all these people are able to gain funding because of the ability to cloak their ownership. And the hope is with these kind of legislation that there's going to be a lot less of that. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's you think about jewelry and of course how centuries, millennia, the culture of this industry has been wrapped around secrecy and security, but it, it just doesn't fly anymore. Yeah. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. 
please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. So I want to talk about color for a minute, a little pivot. It's not brand new news because it came out in early December, but Pantone named two colors as its 2021 colors of the year. And I'm thinking, you know, for jewelry, they're not maybe the most obvious colors. They're ultimate gray and illuminating, which is a very bright, cheerful kind of emoji yellow. Emoji yellow. Whoa. I mean, obviously, color has a lot of nuance and it really depends on the way you look at it. I wouldn't say it's overly bright. It's not a neon yellow. It is a bright, you know, hopeful, optimistic yellow. And I keep thinking, how are we going to render that in jewelry? I mean, I think of yellow tourmaline maybe as being the closest match and yellow diamonds, of course, and yellow sapphires. And then I think about the ultimate gray and I think of gray spinel, which has been on a tear for a few years now. I actually have a pair of gray loose spinels in my jewelry box that I think I may finally have to do something with, given that they're really the it color of the times. And I keep thinking, what other colors and stones will we see come to the fore this year? And especially because for so many of us, Tucson isn't happening. It's not happening. The Gem Fair is not happening. And GJX is not happening. And of course, JCK Tucson not happening. So I think there probably will still be a smattering of shows in Tucson in February. But a lot of us that came for the fine jewelry and precious stone aspect of Tucson will not be going And a lot of us obviously aren't comfortable traveling at this point. And so how will we know what colors and gems are coming to the fore this year? What people are talking about, where demand is, what the international community is seeing. I am really sad at the loss of Tucson 2021. I think the vaccine coming, had it been a couple more months, we might not have had to sacrifice those shows. But you know, they made the right call, I think, for the times. And so I'm not sure what will replace that gathering in the desert other than, you know, a lot of online speculation. And certainly as an editor, I'll do my best to canvas the gem community and talk to people and get a sense of what is happening. But we really, we're going to miss out on that opportunity. And I'm I'm putting all my faith and all my bets on Las Vegas because that'll be the next big chance. Yeah, yeah. How much do you find the... Pantone color of the year affects the market? That's a very good question. I don't have a data to support any of this. I think it affects the market when it comes out. I see a lot of designers or publicists sending out jewelry in the color scheme of the new color or colors. We've seen two colors once before. I want to say it was 2012. It was like a baby pink and a blue. And so this is the second time in Pantone's history that they've named two colors. I, you know, I think it gets people excited and talking and creates a lot of content. Doesn't mean people go out and buy jewelry that is gray and yellow. I mean, those might get a lift that they wouldn't otherwise have, but will we see a, a year dominated by yellow tourmaline? Well, no, because there's not that much yellow tourmaline in the market. Just a way to open the door to more conversations about color. And how do they determine it? Do they see themselves as reflecting the market or setting the market? I think that's the eternal debate. I did an interview with, I want to say she was the head of a color institute by the last name of Iceman. She's a specialist, and I think she does work for the Pantone Institute now. They've been accused of being the color mafia, you know, that they are the ones who sort of set this, and it's not really a reflection of demand. But I do think that they spend a lot of time studying what's happening in the world. I think they really nailed it, honestly. 
I mean, I think it's cool. Why not? Let's put some cool yellow tourmalines out there and see what happens. Okay. I want to join the color mafia. <laughs> We're in it. I think we are it. Okay. As we enter another weird year, we have a weird story of the week. This is from the East Hampton Star. Everyone knows you can get a great cup of chowder at Gotham's Fish Market in Montauk. Soon, one lucky customer may get a special side dish for that chowder, a giant pearl that was discovered by the market's cooks on November 13th. The pearl is approximately 20 millimeters in diameter, about the size of a gumball, and has a gray and purple sheen to it. It most likely came from a batch of clams. Uh, Doug in Matarock, according to Brian Gossman, a co-owner of the fish market. He said that when he was told about it, he thought someone was playing a joke on him. He said, I know that pearls come from the Quahog clam, but I've never seen one. Usually it's the size of your pinky nail or something like that. This looked like a plastic knob. It didn't seem real, but it was, according to Becca Harris, co-owner of the shipwreck jewelry store near Gossam's Market. She said, almost all pearls you will buy now are cultured, so it's unique to find uh, something that's actually made from an irritant. Uh, the shape is beautiful. And she said it's the biggest pearl that she's ever seen outside of a museum. And they're still figuring out what it's worth, but it will be raffled off as a fundraiser for the Montauk Food Pantry. Oh, I love it. It's like, so it's not an oyster pearl. It's a clam pearl. Yes. I think a gumball is not small. You said 20 millimeters? Yeah, yeah. That's just, that's a nice pearl. Oh, yeah. It sounds so rare. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where it's so rare, there's no market for it because they're just, there's no comparables out there to price it. So I do appreciate the challenge they have in figuring out what it's worth. Yeah. The entire story has made me really hungry. <laughs> yeah. I kind of want some clam chowder now. And I want clam chowder too. <laughs> Well, on that note, um, maybe we'll go off and find some delicious chowder. Yeah, hope everybody has a pearl of a year. There you go. I was was looking for something like that. Yep, it has to get better. May everyone have a prosperous year, have a safe year, and a happy year, and all the best for this year. Let's take a gamble, and it's going to be a good one. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Jewelry District.